Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald and Company. So this evening, I'm sat with Philippa Prongi, Managing Director of Link City UK, responsible for 26 live projects, 4,500 homes. Now, Philippa was previously the Chief Operating Officer of an airspace developer called Apex, and earlier in her career spent 15 years with Keir Property in their development arm, and latterly in their corporate development, including global M&A dealings. So Philippa, thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure. So let's get started, shall we? How does Chapter 1 begin? Well, I'm very lucky, actually. I'm probably somebody who knew what I wanted to do from a very, very young age. And that was all thanks to my father, because uh, he, too, is a chartered surveyor. And he was, well, he started out at Bernard Thorpe, that subsequently ended up being DT dead. Um, and he was into retail. So we spent most of our life going on holiday via all these sorts of, you know, wonderful places and ending up having lots of holidays in the Yorkshire Dales whilst he was building the Metro Centre up there. And because he was a retail agent as well, it was something, you know, I could really relate to, uh, you know, in and out of shops. And I remember, you know, my poor mother having to take me and my two sisters out on the high street. And dad was trying to, at that point, prove the point about shopping centres and how great they were. So, we were being photographed with my mother holding all of our coats on and off. And then, you know, in those days, it was a good old slide deck that he used to um, present it all on. And then, you know, we'd always go and pick him up from the office on Bruce and Holiday. And also back then, there was something called the Chicago Pizza Pie Factory at Hanover Square. And I used to think that was great. And Daddy would always take us there for lunch. <laughs> so really, I just followed followed him and thought it was great fun did something different every day. And in fact, not only me, but my two sisters as well, we all followed my father into property. Oh, what a, what a positive influence that has been then. Mm-hmm. Um, so given that introduction then, Pip, and given that in what, I, what I think sort of many people will find that quite sort of envious of, that sort of quite clarity of sort of vision in terms of what you are going to do, how did those first early years pan out then? Well, quite quite difficult in a way actually because I always said I knew what I wanted to do and then went off to university and and got my degree and in actually I did a degree in rural land management because I decided I knew I was going to work in retail and urban so I'd go and do something different so went off and did that and then got my first job at a very small company and I think back then when we were paid about you know 11,000 pounds as graduates there I remember seeing in the Times newspaper an advert for a receptionist in the city to earn 19,000 pounds and I said to my father that's it I'm off that's a lot of Chicago pizza (laughs) yeah exactly I said I don't want to do this anymore this is too much I want to go off and all I had to do was apparently arrange flowers and um, (laughs) answer the phone (laughs) anyhow my father managed to talk me down from the ledge and say just stick with it I promise you it will be okay you'll get a great career out of it so Luckily, I, I, I listened to him and I, I did stick with it. And I have to say, the early days were great fun. And I ended up at a very small company called Havels, um, set up by a chap called Kevin Havel. And it was really small. So I didn't do your typical graduate rotations and everything else. It was day one, y- you're off. And here you go, here are some clients to ring up and you hit the ground running. And lots of my fellow contemporaries, you know, weren't allowed to have client meetings on their own or any of this stuff. But by month two, you know, either you did it or the meeting didn't happen. So it was really was a baptism of fire. 
but it was interesting because I was talking to shops and re, you know retailers and restaurant owners that you know all brands that I knew and I recognized and one of my first big projects was a retail park down in Plymouth called the Crown Hill Retail Park and it was a big B&Q and a pizza hut as they were back then as well and it was you know it was exciting and you could talk to your friends about it in the evening and they, they knew what was going on and you know they, they could relate to what, what I was doing as well so I think from early doors it was it was really good fun in terms of what I was doing and how I was going out every day. And I stayed there, qualified, got my APC and was also doing a lot of work for IKEA as well, which was kind of I got sent up there for a couple of days a week to work in their offices. And that was a really fascinating insight into how retailers actually worked and they operated and seeing how buildings worked from their perspective, not just from you know, the, the agency side. And that's how I actually met Nigel Turner, who then led me into my journey at Kia. That's a really nice segue then, isn't it? Because you spent, for anyone to the casual sort of listener now, as a bit of a recap, you spent seven seven years or so with, with Havels. Mm-hmm. And then in 2005, we get to see you appear on the Kia books. What was your first gig there? Well, and again, that was an interesting journey. You know, this is all about opportunity, isn't it? And I happened to bump into Nigel outside the key cutters on Regent Street and, you know, said I didn't realise, you know, Kate was leaving. And he said, do you know of anybody looking for a job? I said, well, no, not really. And then he said, well, what about you? I was like, oh, I don't know really, Nigel, good point. He said, well, come in and have a chat. So off I go, and being of the inquisitive mind I am, as the chaps there told me afterwards, apparently I was more interviewing them than them interviewing me. Uh, but, you know, when you love a job, say, so why am I going to leave a job I really enjoy to go into the unknown? So anyhow, off I go and joined. And again, you know, here's a, a blank desk and it was quite a small team back then. And, and Nigel was trying to, to build it up. And right, go find a site and, and see what you can put on it. So off I went, um, searched around and found a site on a north circular road, Shadbolt, it was a veneer factory. So I go back to Nigel and say, you know, I'd really like to buy this site. And he said, okay, we'll find someone to, to go on it. If you get me a pre-let, we'll do it. So off I go and, and find a um, self-storage operator and did a deal with them and then did a deal with GM Motors. And then I suppose never looked back from development thereafter. But Nigel was one of those great bosses that was give you enough rope to hang yourself. You know, he didn't micromanage and, well, I'm about to say, actually, he gave you enough rope to stop you hanging yourself and then he would you know, intervene when, when he needed to. But he was very good at accepting different ways of working and as long as you know the parameters within which you can operate, you can go and, you know, do it your own way and what works best for you. So that was really good as having that sort of leadership from a young start in my career. Now, you you explained it sort of um, very well, whereby you, you put the pieces of, uh, on the board and, and Nigel was quite happy to let you run with it. Was it as easy as that? Was the transition then from retail agency into development as smooth as that? Uh, I suppose not if I properly sat down and analysed it. You know, it's it's all of the challenges. And I think as an, an, an agent, you you don't realise, you know, lots of the complexities that, that go with the site and how you develop it. And I think that that was quite a steep learning curve, actually. You know, suddenly having to look at back seasons and newts and, 
you know, slow worms and all these hurdles that, that come up. And every site is unique and different in, in that respect. And it, I think lots of it was frustration as well. I remember doing Western International Market in, in um, Hounslow and we had to divert a gas pipe. You know, so you get the plan through and there it is and it marks it on the plan and someone goes out to dig it. And guess what? The pipe's not there. And suddenly a six month delay. No one can find this pipe and it emerges. It's actually in the middle of the road because the road's been expanded over the years. And then, you know, you have to then get a stopping up order. So as you say, with all these things that you never realise. And of course, when you're suddenly responsible for the performance and IRRs, etc. Yeah, those sorts of pitfalls that you just can't predict before you begin and I suppose it's how do you predict these things how you apply that risk into your projects is is the the steep learning curve I, I found and the other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, at this this time Keir's got a very strong brand but as a contractor yes did that affect your role in the development side of the business y- yes yes it did and I think well, firstly, when you said you worked for Kia, you know, it's all about branding. They thought you were a car manufacturer. So that was the first <laughs> hurdle to overcome. And then we had a lot of chat about whether we should rebrand Kia property or not and what the advantages of that would be. And we had the luxury also of not always having to use Kia construction. We, we could actually go out into the open market um, depending on what the project was, if the you know if the order book was full or if the site was too small for them, etc. So we did have a little little bit of leeway, but it was the outside imperception of you not being commercial enough and agile enough, and you might be held back by a contracting mindset. So we did have to work quite hard at separating that and saying it was an arm's length transaction because all of our projects are funded, so it has to be an arm's length transaction with your contracting arm so and I think often working for a sister company can cause quite a lot of tension between businesses as well and you know we were known as the well back then of course in in that time it was kind of the champagne charlies because you know not many surveyors when I first started worked on a Friday afternoon um, (laughs) where contractors did so there was a bit of that learning as well but no I think on the whole we we muddled through and we, we did have a good relationship with our with our contracting arm. So just re, re, um, revisiting then what, what I said before, the way you sort of describe it, you make it sound like things were very, very easy. What was the what was the next big challenge during those Kia days for you? Well, it was when Nigel said to me, Pip, can I have a word? And we got the lift up to the fourth floor. And I thought, oh, no, what's coming? And he said, I've got an exciting challenge for you. I said, really, Nigel, what's that? He said, well, you know the Kia project investment business? I said, yes. He said, well, we've got a slight issue. Um, The government's now stopping PFIs. Uh, There's a team of people sat there. He said, I'm I'm sure they're all very good, but I I don't know them. Um, Could you please go and take over that business and let me know what you think, where they can be redeployed um, and and what we should do? Okay, Uh, thanks, Nigel. He said, if you could let me know by Friday, that would be great. So, uh, okay, I knew nothing about PFIs. I really didn't know who, who anybody was. But, you know, me being me, I thought, well, what the hell, I'll, I'll take this challenge on. So went back and said, be delighted to do it, Nigel. And that was it. Moved moved up a couple of flights of stairs in the building. And here's a team of people and, and away you go. And I suppose it was the first time I've ever been 
challenge from a management perspective because it was a team of people I didn't know. They, you know, they were used to working on incredibly long bids that took a long time to come to fruition. They knew that the writing was on the wall in terms of where their part of the business was going. So everyone felt a little bit threatened. And there I arrive as a, you know, I was younger than most of them, actually. And here I am coming to assess you all and to see what we're going to do. So I made the decision that when I when I moved up there, we had two bids in um, for PFIs. And I thought, well, we're probably not going to win those. So I'm not even going to bother learning how PFIs work. And then blow me, we won both of them. I was like, oh, no. But then I had to learn about PFIs. And um, anyone who's ever worked in them will be able to tell you just how much paperwork goes with a PFI project. So off, off we go. And that, that was great. But I did still end up with a, you know, a team of people who there was nothing really for them to do. So I had to analyse the skill sets. And really, that's what made us go into student accommodation, because at that time, quite a lot of that was coming out through OJU and was being done by a DBFO route, so design, build, finance, operate. And actually, I had a team of people there that were really well suited to, to that type of work. So I managed to get a team and off we went doing that. And then that also led us to winning uh, or bidding and winning the Watford Latvi as well. Um, unfortunately, I, I did have to, to let a few people go, which is never nice. And, and I have to say that was a, a real eye opener, actually. And I remember sitting with HR on, on the day this, this had to be done and, you know, went into the room and this lady said to me, well, over to you. Like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> so off you go. It's like, you know, you've got to be kidding me. There I was quite young and, you know, oh, here we are. Anyhow, that was horrific. Um, so anyhow, had, that was, uh, you had to deal with all of that and then re-energise the team, get them motivated. And as you say, luckily we then won the, the, the few PFIs that we had on and then we were able to win the student accommodation projects. And then off we went and, and built a, a successful business, which which was really good. And so what do you get back then in, in return? You've, you've, take, you've taken on what could have been a basket case. You've obviously turned it around. You've pivoted to, to a, different, a different asset class as, uh, as well, streamlined this business. Mm-hmm. What do you get in return? Um, <laughs> three years of hard work and then eventually <laughs> a promotion to being the MD of, of the southern region of, of care property. So uh, three years later, I put the, the team, merged them together with the property team and we ended up with one big proper development team, which was great. And I have to say, for those years when I was was doing that, it was a time where, you know, everything we touched seemed to turn to gold in terms of you know, returns and the projects. And, you know, it was a really fun time buying lots of sites, developing them out, all being really successful. I mean, with, with challenges as well, as I explained, but good, good fun, I would say, really good fun. Now, I wanted to ask you something. Um, mm-hmm. Because then there is, sort of the questions or that I, I most like to ask when I'm sat back listening to these stories are that people like yourself make these transitions and these quite hefty sort of career jumps, make it sound very easy and very, very smooth. And I bet they weren't. But the bit, the bit I think I'm most interested in is the why. You've both, both those times, the, originally the, being a very successful development manager within the care property and then leaving that behind to take, take on this big risk. Why did you do that? To many people listening, they think, but that sounded much harder work. It sounded much, uh, a much riskier move. Why not stay in your lane? Uh, 
do. Uh, because I think I'm somebody who's, I've always loved going into work. And I know it probably makes some people sick, but I've always kind of, every morning, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I hate getting out of bed. But once I'm up, you know, I always get a thrill coming on the train and walking into the office. And I do like a bit of a challenge, I'm afraid. And I think I'm quite determined and I like to see things happen and, and making a change. And I think Nigel also was one of those great leaders as well that instilled a confidence in you that made you think you, you could do anything as well. And I think when somebody puts their trust in you, you think, OK, well, if he thinks I can do it, I reckon I can do this. Come on, Pip, it's a good challenge. See, see what you can do. And also, I think he instills a culture of, yeah, there was there was a no blame culture. So as long as you, you know, had to go and communicated if something were to fail you wouldn't be blamed and and hung out to dry so I think that enabled a real culture that that people could grow and and go out and take a risk and a challenge so he had a really good management style and I think it was really probably down to him and his support that that made me do it and take take the leaps if I'm brutally honest okay and also I would I would bring my father up as well and say what do you think he'd say just go for it so I did. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that's the answer to my next question. So you know, like sure. we like to do our research for the uh, for the pod, and I spoke to a couple of different yeah. people who've who've worked with you over the years. And I asked I asked someone who was um, one of your seniors at this at this time as to you know what they thought were one of your most prominent traits. And this is this is what they said. Mm. Pip was someone you could always rely on to say yes. Even in scenarios when she couldn't know all the answers beforehand, she had this confidence that she was just going to get the job done. Not reckless, but knew when the research ended and the hard work began. Do you recognise that? Do you think that's true? Yes. And I think also what helps is I'm not afraid to ever ask for help. So I'm someone who acknowledges the true benefit of a team because if I knew everything I wouldn't need to ever work with anyone and employ anybody so I think by the very title of even development manager or you know a managing director you are managing a team of people and I think it's up to you as that manager to make sure you are equipped with the best team that you you can possibly have to support you and I think recognizing the bits that you don't know and where to go and find them. So if I didn't know something, I would make sure I went and found the answer. I put myself with the right people to make sure I got those answers. So bring other people on that journey with me as well and get the whole team behind whatever the objective was that we we were trying to achieve. But yeah, I've always been someone who will accept something and then afterwards think, oh, what have I done? And then, right, how am I going to overcome this? And then go off and do all the research and then put the strategy in afterwards. Okay. To anyone who's listening to this, who feels like they've, they've either got an opportunity or they'd like, they'd like to take that next step, but are probably caught themselves in a little bit of sort of uh, information sort of paralysis where they, they can't make the sums add up about sort of about whether they should take that next leap. What advice would you give them? Well, it would be do it. <laughs> but... I mean, it is, I hate the expression, nothing ventured, nothing gained. But, you know, people also learn from failure as well. And I think, take on the challenge. But I think it's incumbent upon the people who have set you the challenge to also give you the support that you need to carry it out as well. So I would advise people not to do it if they were going to be left on their their own. But if you can equip yourself with the right people around you, 
and be able to rely on consultants or whomever you may need, I think then definitely go for it. Well, then let's let's get back to then to the timeline. You um, you introduced then taking over as managing director of the South for for Kia Property. Now, what was what was the first big task then in the uh, in this new job? Well, it wasn't really a, a task, but what happened is I accepted the job, and then about three weeks later, went and broke my back. So that was quite an interesting start to a job. Um, so yeah, spent the uh, first six weeks with my uh, lying flat on my back, which was um, interesting. I wouldn't recommend that as a thing to do when you first get a new job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But no, what was the first? The first challenge really was to integrate the teams. And, you know, I had to, you know, know, like all these things, people are are creatures of habits. So even getting people to move floors on the building, you know, it's quite a big step for people. And I know that sounds really silly, but people like going to the same place every day and sitting with their team and, and everything else. So, First of all, was to, to spice that up, get the team to be sat working as one. And then really just trying to, I suppose, run the team as, as Nigel always run it. So I always want to empower people to go and do the best job that, that they can do. I don't want to micromanage people. And most importantly, the communication part, because I think in development, what we do for a living, we have the luxury of time. You know, I'm not doing open heart surgery. If something goes wrong, I have got time to fix it. But if I don't know about it, I can't fix it. So it's trying to get that culture where people can open up to you about where where things are in the project without fear of, you know, if it's gone wrong. So to try and create that environment, that culture, and to get people to to go out, find the sites and, and be commercial. And I think also... Getting people to make decisions as well. And, you know, as everyone will tell you who's in business, decision making is is a real challenge. And I think sometimes, you know, you just can't let perfect be the enemy of acceptable. And we don't have the answers, all of them, all of the time. But sometimes you've got to make the decision and get on with it. So trying to also get that culture in in the team as well and how we analysed risk and, and moved it forward. But yeah, it, it, as you say, it, it was a good time as well. The, the market was buoyant. So, it, you know, the, the stars did align for me in, in that respect. So once more, Pip, I wanted to spring in a little bit of my research. And I've, I've spoken to someone who, who has been a part of your, of your teams before. And I asked them about your management style and, what, again, what they, what they thought was, was one of the most prominent sort of styles in that. And this is what they said. Pip really listens to the team. This lets her rebuild the team into a well-oiled machine where people buy into that collective goal and are given the chance to excel. And people are really loyal to her because of that. And by this, you know, and whilst you've been extremely humble, but you've you've sort of explained this, you know, as in being sort of a tenant of each of the teams you've built. I think we're coming up to a point now in your story whereby there needs to be a really a really big pivot, a really big sort of goal to achieve. Tell us a bit more about sort of you know um, some of the strife that was affecting Kia at this time. Yeah, exactly. So, and again, you know, make a rod from my own back because in about the May time of 2018, Bain were brought into Kia to start doing some you know future proofing Kia program and make us a you know well oiled machine and things like that. And you know, again. Being the inquisitive person I am, I went up to our chief exec and said, I'd love to get involved in that. So I became the property kind of rep 
um, which led to me sitting with Bain and we, you know, talking all about care in the business, etc. And then suddenly in um, well, it was July time, actually, we called it the night of the long knives. You know, we all came into work in the morning and basically a whole management layer above us had, had been removed. It was like, oh, what, what's happened here? And next thing you know, I get a phone call from the chief exec, you know, can you come upstairs? And, you know, I was thinking, oh, well, if I was getting sacked, surely it wouldn't be him doing it. So anyhow, I walk up the stairs and sit down and I get, um, this is what has happened. Um, but as a result, we would like to promote you. So we'd like you to come in and be our um, group strategy and corporate development director. And then on, on top of that, Bain said, you've done such a good job that they think you should also be the uh, chief transformation officer. Oh, okay. All right. So you can't really say no to your CEO. So I didn't really want to go and work in the centre. I loved doing what I did. And again, you know, advice from dear dad was, whatever you do, don't go and work in the centre. I said, well, what can I do now? I can't say no. So off I go. And as you say, it it, it just spiralled. And it, it was, I mean, it was fascinating. So having come from a part of the business where, we made lots of money, we had lots of money, you know, and, and all that, to suddenly see what was going on in the rest of the group and realise quite how dire the situation was, was, was a real eye-opener. And then, you know, finding out all about, about how the, the business operated, what, you know, IT functions, fleet functions, procurement, you know, HR, all, all this sort of stuff, which, you know, I, I didn't really know much about, if I'm brutally honest with before. And... That was it. So off it goes. And the first thing I had to do was go out to Australia and sell a highways business over there. Um, and again, never done any sort of MA before. Um, off I go. And what was supposed to be a week turned into a month. So that was challenging in itself because, you know, I have a husband and, and two kids as well. And off you go. Bye bye. See you in a week's time. And then you don't reappear for, for a month. Um, and pushing that through and, you know, the importance of having to get that deal done and ready for the rights issues, sorry, was happening at that same time. So they wanted to be able to, at the AGM, say, we, we've sold this business, don't worry, we bought some money in and the rights issue. But as you, you probably know, I mean, I successfully sold the business in, um, in, in Australia. So that was good. But the rights issue was an absolute disaster for the group with, it not being taken, I think only something like 38% or something of the shares got taken up by the shareholders. So therefore, um, banks had to step in, etc. So as a result of that, um, our CEO got fired and a couple of other people left. And we were left with no CEO and the chairman then had to come in and be the executive chair. And, and it was quite funny because we were on a the top floor of, of the building and you know we all had our, our nice offices and I did say it, it was like a Jeffrey Archer novel you know it was like no one was talking to anyone it was silence we had a CFO who was hacked off and you know we had a the COO who was then created who was then equally you know hacked off they weren't made the CEO and everything else so the chairman used to come and hide in my office with me and the two of us just sat together saying, right, what, what are we going to do now? How are we going to, to sort this out? So we were then having to continue the work of Bain and, and right-sizing the organisation. I then had to, for the first time, interact with the city analysts and the corporate advisors. And, you know, guiding through all of that, we had three profit warnings. 
And I had to give the assurances to all of the analysts and the corporate advisors that, you know, the future proofing care program was on track. We were going to save money. You know, it was going to be a success. But it, it's quite hard. You know, we had to lose 1,200 people. And I was having to go into all of the business units and tell them, right, I need you to, you know, get rid of three directors. And they're like, why? <laughs> and and. What's really difficult is when you have a company of, of that size and scale is how do you keep people motivated? How do you keep people going? Because that's the most important thing. You need the work. You need to continue winning work and deliver well. But whilst trying to shield them from what's happening at group level, but at the same time, they're having to change their ways, change their behaviours as we try and right-size the organisation. So in order to, to influence and get people on board, I had to be really analytical. And obviously, thankfully, I had Bain who were running all the numbers, et cetera, in the background. But so you could sit there and prove why overhead had to be reduced. So as long as everything was backed up by science, so to speak, or, or numbers, I should say, it, it worked. And, you know, it was a case of relating it to margin, you know, in order to... to save money you've either got to you know make more margin or this is going to have to happen so it it was a a real eye-opener and a struggle to get people on board changing mindsets changing behaviors of the whole business outsourcing it outsourcing fleets so yeah it it was it was a really interesting fascinating time to to be in a business you know, I probably went through more than most businesses go through in their lifetime, all in, in that, that year, really, year and a bit. And I, I did find it really, really interesting. But I did desperately miss doing the thing I love most, which was property development. Now, again, coming back to Career Master and sort of Pip, we know then you're no longer at, at Kia. You've, you've travelled all the way then through that incredibly sort of di- uh, difficult sort of period of reshaping the business. What was the the catalyst then for wanting to make a move then to to leave Kia and then, and and uh, we we know with a bit of hindsight you you joined uh, Apex airspace developer as a chief operating officer. What was mm-hmm. what was the tipping point? What made you make want to make that move? <laughs> um, well, lots of reasons really. Firstly, at, at Kia, when you when you've led a successful transformation, you as a CTO no longer have a job. But we were looking to sell Kia property at that time. And that business has shrunk right back down, which was really sad to see when you successfully built up a business and then you watch it through no fault of its own because that part of the business was very successful, have to be shrunk back and have no capital put into it. And then me and the CEO, he said, well, do you want to go into construction? No. Do you want to go into you know infrastructure? No. I want to go back to property. So it was quite an easy decision to, to leave. And if I'm honest, I... I really needed a, a palate cleanser. You know, if I'd gone straight into another big corporate at that point in time, it, it would have been bad because like, to say I didn't trust, well, actually, I think that is the right word, actually, because the more and more layers that got peeled back at Keir, you know, the more and more stuff was coming out. You just think, oh, you know, I, I, if I moved straight to another organisation, I would have been questioning everything that, that was going on. So I knew I wanted a, a total change. And ironically, I, in my bit of gardening leave, obviously, I, I planned to go off and, you know, take the kids around Vietnam and all these great trips, which I've never been on because I've always been working. And then, of course, 
blimmin' COVID hit, didn't it? So none of that actually happened, which was a bit disappointing, but never mind, c'est la vie. We thankfully were all safe and well and went to Apex. And ironically, actually, it was my old chief exec, Hayden, who, who brought me into the fold and actually another chap called John Anderson. And it's a really, really fascinating concept. And, you know, I, I, I also went from one extreme to the total other, you know, walked into an office where everyone was in, you know, pretty much jeans and a T-shirt and um, there wasn't much of a team. There wasn't any structure, um, you know, not, no compliance, no nothing really. So it was, it was, you know, a total eye opener. And I went there because I believed in what, what the business was, was trying to achieve desperately. And, you know, for, for all, for, for all the, the, the right reasons. And I was brought in to put the team together, to put some structure in. I didn't want to turn it into a corporate and drag it down with process, but it, it needed something. It needed some you know, accountability and to get the sites moving forward. And, and, it, and it was really fascinating. And I think what I've always enjoyed is that building a business up to, to be successful and making the team work and et cetera, putting that all in place. And that gave me the perfect opportunity to do all of that put the strategy together, um, go out, look at different ways of funding, etc. So it enabled me probably to bring together all of the skill sets I had and also to be able to do some hands-on development work myself. Now, I've got a cheeky question, put this in the, in the back of my mind. Yeah, go on then. And I bet I'm not the only one thinking. Yeah, sort of the, <laughs> yeah, the, the pace and the scale of the, of the roles and the responsibilities that you've sort of garnered over the last sort of 15 uh, or so sort of years you know, has been sort of meteoric. Moving then from, from that business to uh, airspace, it feels small fry for you. Was it? <laughs> yes, um, bluntly, but no, it wasn't sold that way. I think I, I was sold the dream, so to speak, and, you know, sold this pipeline of, you know, 2,000 units, and it was funded by BGF, and it had funding from the GLA and, and Homes England, etc. And then I think, you know, as you then get involved and you start peeling back the layers, etc., you know, it probably wasn't as secured as one was probably led to believe. And I think the frustration was... For, for me in particular, is that I could have sorted it if the kind of chief exec and founder had the had the correct vision, I suppose. And for us, he was very interested in, in, in IPOs in, in five and ten, ten years rather than focusing on the here and now. So as always with any form of development work, you know, it's the opportunity cost of that finance. And the longer you take to make a decision and you're burning through interest every month, well, that money actually could have been deployed into developing out one of the, the sites that we had, which didn't actually need that much equity. But so much time was spent trying to not put equity in and source it from other places that we burnt through just as much in overhead than we could have put into the project. So that that bit was was quite frustrating. And, you know, we've got a couple of projects on site, which was absolutely great. But I was I then left because of that lack of kind of immediate capability of being able to go out and deliver. But I think for, for me and for my perspective, it came at just the right time. You know, I, I think I probably needed a bit of a break when you're working all out and everything else. For once, I was actually home to see the kids at the right time. I got to spend a bit of time with them. And actually, it all came perfectly because it was then during lockdown. 
Um, and the, my children then were, were how old are they now? They're 14 and 13, so they were, what, 11 and, and 12. So actually, I was with them at the perfect time of being at home as well. So actually, it's it probably, if I was to write my CV, I probably wouldn't put it on there. But actually, do I regret it? No, I think the way I am, I always take a learning out of everything that I do. And, you know, for me, it was really, really interesting to go in and just experience, you know, how a startup works and thinks. And I think you know, lessons learned from there are very much making sure people's visions and objectives are aligned right from day one. We're getting now to being pretty close then to, to bang up to date to mm-hmm. your current role, which is there is there's a lot of synergies, isn't there, between Kia and Bouygues? A lot of uh, yes. care property and Link City. Um, was it was it too similar when you when you were first presented with the opportunity? No, I actually it was to me it was really exciting. And um, you know if you could see me now, I've got a massive smile on my face talking about it. And it was great because the opportunity was to grow the Link City business to be the property business in its in its prime back in you know 2018 and the the team of people here and the way the business is is fantastic they are a bunch of really talented energized people and you know desperate to go out there and it's a very similar challenge you know, they've come from a business of so we came over to the UK very much to do PFIs etc and to do lots of student accommodation and things. And obviously that, that market has dried up a bit. So it's trying to use skill sets to go out and, and, and explore other avenues of work. So to me, really exciting because I get the opportunity to grow a business. But, you know, for the first time ever, well, actually, that's like, because when I first joined Kier, they had £64 million in the bank. But anyhow, now to join a business where they've got no debt at all. And it's just brilliant. So... The, the capabilities of, of the people and the opportunity is, is immense. And for me, it again, it landed at just the right time, you know, for, for that challenge to, to grow and build a business again in a proper grown-up business um, and to build on the platform that's already here. Okay. Well, then let's, let's talk about the, the what, you know, let's, we start now, turn our attention now from looking backwards to looking forwards. Mm-hmm. what's your next big task what's your next you know, we've heard from people you know who've sort of talked about it as being Pippa's extremely goal orientated what's the next big goal here well um to grow and to get much more sites in um here at, at link city and to grow to have a sustainable business i think one of the biggest challenges of any development company is the lumpiness of work and I want to try and grow it to get that consistency in. So you've got enough projects that you've got enough levers to pull that, you know, you can consistently return profit and cash to, to a group, which is what I'm really striving for here is to, is to get that, you know, amount of work in to get the variety of projects. So we get different sizes that don't all have to be massive. We can start doing some smaller projects as well and, and looking up at different ways of, of funding as well and, and working with people and, and meaningly make a difference. And the advantage of, of working here is that they have, well, we have the support of all the businesses around the world. So in terms of, you know, technologies, in terms of meeting all of the carbon targets and sustainability targets, you know, we are so well placed to get those learnings from around the world. 
and from a really talented bunch of, of people who have the opportunity and the means to properly research these methods and, and put them into play. And here as well, we, we self-deliver and self-product as well. So again, it's, you know, we, we can do these things meaning, meaningfully rather than having to always push them down into our supply chain. So for me, I think it's, you get you get to a point in life where you want to give back as much as you want to keep growing and, and succeeding. And it's how one can do that in an environment where, you're still running a business successfully, but through what you're delivering, it can have a meaningful impact. And I think here I've got the opportunity to, to do that and to do it successfully. It reminds me, this is bringing back a bit of our research. It, I, asked, I asked someone who, who'd been a part of your team what their earliest memory of was of you. Uh, and they said it's really, really clear. Oh, no. Um, um, <laughs> You when you when you first met this person when they would um, when they just started with the business, and the very the very first question you asked them was, "What can we do better?" And it floored them that they they were never expecting to you know to have been asked, not only by anyone in the business but you know by someone who was leading that business, something as straightforward as straight shooting as that really. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask, ask this to you because you've been in transformational roles. You're in leadership sort of roles. We've heard about sort of what a great sort of um, uh, sort of manager you have you have been. What could people who are listening to this benefit from your experience? Is it asking those those sort of questions, or is there or is there other some some other gems you can offer up? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I just. I always think I just bumble through life, isn't it? So anyway, somebody asks you to sit back and reflect on how you do things. You think, well, do, do I do it in a, in a certain way? But yeah, I think I do probably ask a lot of questions and I listen a lot. And, you know, as I often say to people, if, if you don't tell me things, how do I know how to, how to fix it? And, you know, but one thing I'm quite obsessed about is things that add value and don't add value. And, you know, when we're at a time where, you know, we want people to be their most productive, et cetera. Well, if they're doing something that doesn't add any value, why why are we doing it? So as you say, and it's asking people, you know, what what can we do better or what is the source of your hesitation? You know, if you're trying to get people to change the way they're doing things, you know, what's stopping you from being able to do this? You know, is it the fear of the unknown or is it actually genuinely something that the business can do better and, and can do right? And I think the feedback loop is so important, not only, you know, I think, you know, nowadays they have this upward and, and downward mentoring, which I think is, is a really interesting concept. But, you know, it's the same when you finish a project as well, you know, going to ask the teams, what, what could we do better next time? And what added value, what didn't add value? And really analysing, you know, why we do things. And, I, you know, I hate wasting my own time time is precious we don't have much of it and the thought of I've got a team of people sat there doing stuff which they don't really think is adding value then then we shouldn't be doing it but also I think always asking people how we can do things better and not telling people how to do it because you know stuff moves at such a fast pace now that you know I'm sure there's a much better way of doing things than I ever did things you know, even that is like my little girl, you know, yesterday was showing me how she now does her revision notes, which she's never done before. And, you know, she's done them all on her, you know, whatever they get given at school with an electronic pen. You know, and I'm kind of sat there hyperventilating, thinking where are the revision cards and your highlighters and everything else. But it's just a totally different way of doing things. So I think 
you know, and again, I think I learned that a lot from my parents, you know, when we had our children. You know, my mother never told me what to do, like lots of mothers like to do. You know, my mother said, well, I'm sure there's a better way of doing it now. It's like, oh, okay. Um, and eventually you beg for help. You know, how do I stop the baby crying? And eventually you say something. But I think, you know, we've been, I've been brought up in a home where you've always been encouraged to do things your own way and think outside the box. So I will, I respect people to have those same thoughts and, and everything else. So, yeah, I think it's, I want people to challenge how we do stuff and ask how and why we do things. I think that's really important and not to be afraid of it, to make sure that you have an environment and a culture where that respect is there across everybody. So before we wrap up, I've got one more question for you. Now, Mm -hmm. PIP and goals seems to be very closely linked, right, with all, all the research I've done. So... If we if we substitute goals for success, has has your sort of how you measured success has that changed over time from the pip maybe who was starting out in Havels or earliest days of Kia to someone who's had all that experience and is now leading Link City, has it changed? Yes, in a way, but it's interesting. Because if you asked me, do I think I'm successful? I would probably answer no, um, because I'm always striving to do better and striving to do more. And again, that comes from family. You know, my father is, um, well, he'd kill me for telling you. But anyhow, he's way past retirement age, but he still works. And, you know, I think there's something to learn every day. And therefore, you know, I'm keen to to keep going. But I suppose what, what I think going on, a few courses over my time has made me realise is that actually, and I, I hate saying things like this, but I probably have been quite successful, but I would never judge myself that way. But I then, what I've trained my brain to do is to step back and think, okay, what have you achieved? What has been successful? And how have you done it? So I think, yes, my view of success has changed in terms of I have to stop myself sometimes to reflect on what I have achieved but I'm still very much I could do better and I want to do better so I I do struggle a bit with that I'm someone who every day will say I can do better today all right then well on uh, on that note there let's wrap this up thank you so much for for spending the time uh, with me to do it I've thoroughly enjoyed the story um and there's no doubt you've you've inspired an awful lot of people uh, who are listening to this as well so thank you very much it's been my absolute pleasure